Hello and welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare. Joining me as always is Aaron Mansfield. Aaron, how you doing today, buddy? Been into any spoopy stuff lately? Uh, yeah. I actually checked out uh, the new Panos Cosmetos movie the other night, uh, Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage, which was awesome. It's elements of some Helter Skelter with a little bit of Hellraiser with Nicolas Cage just heaped on for good measure. It was a fun movie. The soundtrack is pretty great. The visuals in that movie are fantastic. And Cage's performance is not just a banana or a couple of bananas. It's like a giant outdoor garbage can with giant black yard bag filled with bananas. So it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. He's having a little bit of a career resurgence, isn't he? Because he was in the Teen Titans Go to the movies with, as Superman. He's already been cast in, as, uh, I believe, Spider-Man Noir in yep. the upcoming uh, Into the Spider-Verse Spider-Man movie that's coming out. And then he was just in Mom and Dad, which has already kind of gotten like a cult status from, from what I've heard. People either really love that movie or really fucking hate that movie, from what I what I've heard. But but yeah, he's he seems like he's kind of just been popping up more and kind of in I guess in the same way that what's his face from Jurassic Park and all that and Guardians Galaxy. I can't think of his name right now off the top of my head. Jesus, what's wrong with me? Jeff Goldblum. Yes, <laughs> like he he has like a Jeff Goldblum. Like he's just been popping up more and more on my radar. People talking highly of him now. Granted. I think Jeff Goldblum never really had too much of a low point in his career like Nicolas Cage did, but you would probably know that better than I would. Honestly, I think Cage's uh, agent is just picking better projects for him, honestly. I think he's getting into more genre stuff that's more interesting and less direct-to-redbox bad action movies. So yeah, that movie was great. I would definitely recommend it. I enjoyed Panos Cosmatos's last movie, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which was a lot of fun. Beyond that, I have been commuting for my job for the last while, and so I've been burning through audiobooks. And I just finished Stephen King's newest book, The Outsider, which was good. It's not as corny as a lot of Stephen King stuff tends to be. It's not hung on 50s nostalgia as much. It doesn't quite have as many of the tropey things that King is kind of known for. But I overall, I mean, I enjoyed it enough. It was fun. Um, the premise is a child is murdered in a small town somewhere in maybe Oklahoma, Kansas, somewhere in there. Brutal murder. And they have enough evidence where they pretty much have this guy, like, dead to rights. Um, there is no questioning the fact that this guy's guilty. And so they arrest him. And turns out, oh no, he was actually in a different city with witnesses. He was on camera. He has, like, there's evidence that he was 100% there. So then it becomes this question of, okay, well, what the hell's really going on? It's not as simple as, let's, it's not as simple as, oh, well, it's a twin, it's a doppelganger. It's, it's much more interesting than that, but it's, it's not super convoluted, I will say. So I enjoyed it. Nice. I actually, the, one of the last Stephen King novels I read was his most recent collection of short stories, unless he came out with one in 
the last three years, but it came out, uh, I think it back in November, 2015 called the bizarre of bad dreams. And I read that back in 2016 and it was pretty solid. There were a couple stories that were, were just good short. They're all short stories that were like published in different magazines and stuff collect together. There were a couple that were just good, solid horror reads. Um, surprisingly a lot of just heavy, heavy, just topics he tackles, I think kind of, he even go he, he even like one of the short stories is literally called afterlife it's kind of a an idea of what he thinks might happen after you die he has a little forward before each of these short stories and in it he even mentions the fact that he's kind of entered the twilight years of his life that death has kind of been on his mind and he's not necessarily afraid of death or anything like that but he it, it's gonna come for him sooner or later he's kind of always been curious about that so one of the stories is is called afterlife and that one's a little more heavy the last story in the book was called summer thunder that was really heavy it was like in this post-apocalyptic landscape kind of almost like children of men style where it's more everything is fucked and there's no fixing things whatsoever and there's no hope but it's it, it left me it left me more depressed than scared if anything yeah, it sounds sounds like a very bright, happy tale. Yeah, like I mean, the whole book is really good. It, it I was surprised because, like you, with Stephen King, I almost the little bit of Stephen King I have read, most of it's just kind of been hokey or kind of popcorn style horror. Not that he's a bad writer; he's a fantastic writer, but not no real substance, I guess, to it. This book was full of substance. It stuck in my mind for quite a while after I read it, but it was not what I expected when I did read it. I might check that one out then. Uh, the next one of his that I'm gonna listen to is uh, revival i've read in a lot of different places that that one's very interesting and off the beaten path and the ending of that one is apparently pretty insane so i'm gonna check it out and since i mean this year like i've been on a stephen king kick i've never been a huge stephen king fan per se just because i've never really read any of them Um, i've always enjoyed stephen king movies um, I mean, The Shining is one of my all-time favorite movies, even though I know that's one that he personally hates. But, I mean, I've I've enjoyed a lot of Stephen King movie stuff. I've just never dug into the books. My uncle is a huge Stephen King nut. And I remember going to my grandmother's house growing up and seeing all those Stephen King spines on his bookshelf and just wondering, like, what the hell is that, like, demon cat? And what is this weird, like, alligator man fighting this like obi-wan kenobi looking motherfucker with a sword and that was like the spine for the stand which that image like has nothing to do with the actual plot other than you know thematically but i just remember seeing all those spines of the books and just thinking growing up like oh those look kind of cool and just never really getting into it and the hokiness that i referred to a second ago you know a lot of that 50s nostalgia and good guys are good and bad guys are bad that's something that i did like about the the outsider was that there was very little of that the characters are all slightly broken in their own ways and they make mistakes and there's not any clear delineation of good versus evil in it so i i kind of enjoy that i mean overall this year i've i've burned through it and pet cemetery the shining Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining that they are currently making a movie of right now, which I'm fairly interested in, all said and done. Um, so not to get like too, too off, but it's it picks up years later once Danny is grown. Right. And so he's dealing with like, you know, all of his past stuff. And there's this group of like roaming psychic vampires who shine. Yeah, I've read the premise for it before. So I have kind of an yeah. idea of like what the... 
what the general gist of it is. It's kind of nuts, but I'm liking the way that the movie's shaping up. Uh, the cast looks great. It's Ewan McGregor as Danny, and Rebecca Ferguson is kind of the main leader of the uh, evil vampire people. So I'm I'm kind of digging that. And the director, Mike Flanagan, uh, just did Gerald's Game for Netflix, Haunting of Hill House Netflix series as well. I mean, he's done some good stuff, so I'm, I'm interested to see where that one goes. Um, but yeah, overall, I think Revival might be my next King book, and then I'll probably hit that short stories book that you just mentioned. Have you ever have you ever looked into King's like kind of he almost has like a shared universe or multiple shared universes across his books. Yeah. Like I know that it the entity from it is actually somehow tied to like the Dark Tower series, which is also there are like appearances of certain entities and other books that are also technically like of the same race or show up in, in like Dark Tower because the Dark Tower, I think, uh, like has to do with crossing between planes of existence and shit like that. But and I think The Shining, not only with Doctor Sleep being a direct sequel, but I think The Shining is also in like the same universe as other books of his. Yeah, a lot of the main stuff is. The Dark Half and Needful Things are directly related by the uh, sheriff character that's in there. It and The Shining are directly related because uh, Dick Halloran is mentioned by name in It. The character Mike... Um, his father's kind of telling him about, you know, kind of some of the history of uh, the African-American community within the town of Derry and how the hangout spot was burned down. And there was, you know, he was kind of basically given this backstory of his military life. And he specifically mentions Dick Halloran was like the cook in their military group. It, it's all tied together in various ways. I'm just not really deep into that universe enough to know like where all the crossovers really take place. See, that, that shit is my jam. Like I don't necessarily need to have everything literally crossover directly with everything. Like a sequels or just the same character popping up everywhere. Just little things. Kind of almost like what Tarantino does like, apparently across all his movies where these little things that kind of loosely make it in the same universe just taking place in different realities or different periods in time I, I think that stuff is kind of fascinating with when certain people who have built a brand just almost off their name alone publish multiple stories in any format whether it be books movies etc they kind of put it all together in the same universe with just small details here and there i find that stuff fascinating yeah, the uh, Universal Monsters crossover, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, that's that's my jam. <laughs> the Pixar shared universe. Oh man, is that dark universe, the, the more modern one, still happening after the disaster that was the first movie? I have not heard anything about that since okay. like last year or the year before. I think that's pretty much been shelved again. Like I said, while I do like shared universes and things tying, crossing over and little Easter eggs, I, I don't need stuff like that. Stuff on that, like on that scale, if you do it as well as Marvel, then hey, more power to you. I'm all for it. But if you're not like Marvel, if you're more like Warner Brothers about it, then don't do it. Fucking shelve it and focus on making good movies. Yeah, really. That's all I've really dug into lately. How about yourself? I, I've been kind of reading through my comics still, catching up. And there's a lot of stuff I could bring up horror-wise out of my comics. But I'll, I'll kind of leave that for a future episode once I get a little bit deeper into my stack. I've been bringing up comics almost every episode, so I wanted to change it up a little bit. So kind of a funny thing happened. And we'll get into the movie where, that we watched for this week. But I was, at the, I was at the gym the other day, and I had my iPod on. And I couldn't figure out like what I wanted to listen to. So I said, screw it. I haven't listened to this in a while. So I put on uh, Gravedigger's Six Feet Deep. 
Deep album, which oh yeah, which is an album you introduced me to years ago in college. And uh, for those of you who do not know what Grave Diggers are, they are rap supergroup, and their specialty is that they are horror, hip hop, horror rap. I don't know the exact horror core, horror core. Okay, yeah, and. So they're and Six Feet Deep is really the only album I've listened to by them. Not only is it one of my favorite album, like not only is it one of the probably the best like horror related album I've ever listened to, but it's honestly in probably my top ten favorite hip hop albums just period it's it's just a damn good album but i was listening to that and that kind of got me in the spoopy mood because uh, a lot of their songs are very much related to that kind of stuff so to give y'all an idea grave diggers is prince paul fruquan poetic and rizza so it's got that old 90s Wu-Tang kind of feel to it. And so all the songs are just like spoopy as shit. Diary of a Madman is one of my favorite ones on that album. That was exactly the same song on my mind. Yep. And that one specifically is just like them on trial for like murder and just giving their story. The cause of death is unknown to the cops. Because when I kill him, I'm not leaving one element to a cops. First I'll assassinate him, and then I cremate him, and take all of his fucking ashes and evaporate him, or creep through the graveyard and hunt down your tombstone, dig up your skeleton and stomp all your fucking bones. It's it's great. It's just the weirdest, like, one-off kind of novelty album, but that's definitely something that gets a lot of play during the Halloween season at our house. Yeah, and I just, I love that song altogether because it's such a good way of just storytelling and music, just because it's all self-contained in one song, and from start to finish, you get everything. They're Like you were saying, they were on trial for murder, but they're all claiming that, like, evil spirits and demons made them do it. Also, you have, like, these other kind of side characters, like, apparently their lawyer knows the judge is like, no, 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 trust me, guys, y'all are, y'all are gonna be fine, like, at the very worst, you're gonna get the insanity plea, like, I know the judge. And then he's like, oh, by the way, make sure you have my retainer. There are songs on that album that are that are more lighthearted and just kind of poking fun. But this song is just straight up dark from start to finish. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite lines in any of the songs is the line, I was, I've been examined ever since I was semen. They took a sonogram and they saw the image of a demon. And I just always thought that was such a good line. And it, it cracks me up every single time I hear it. So I got through that entire album and I was doing like cardio the day I listened to that. So I got through the entire album, was still kind of finishing up on my cardio. So I switched it over to shuffle. And the first fucking song that pops up on my shuffle was the song Sweetly or Sweet Loaf by the Butthole Surfers. It's, it's sweet. Sweatloaf, actually. Sweatloaf, yeah. Yeah. Jesus, Sweatloaf. Um, <laughs> and it's the first song off the album Locust Abortion Technician, which that entire album is fucked from start to finish, and I love it. It's yeah. just so... It really is just like Bad Trip, the album. The Butthole Surfers in general are kind of, if I had to make like a horror mix, I would probably have a few songs by the by the Butthole Surfers on there. They're very, they are a psychedelic band, but they're psychedelic in the way that like, oh, we're gonna take LSD, have a bad trip, and watch a video of like a knee surgery. That kind of shit. Like that, that's kind of shit that they would play at like their concerts. Apparently their concerts were infamous for just being gross and just fucking disgusting on purpose. And side, side story right there. Great documentary is the devil and Daniel Johnson about the singer songwriter, Daniel Johnson. Apparently he went to a butthole surfer show during that era and 
lost his goddamn mind. They showed some clips of some Butthole Surfers concerts from that era, and they are like flipping the symbols upside down and filling them with lighter fluid and lighting it on fire and just splashing fiery lighter fluid everywhere. And there's like liquid projection stuff and like naked women everywhere. Like it looks insane. So the the movie we're doing this week is is The Black Coat's Daughter, which I hadn't really heard much about until Mansfield, you had suggested it to me. And I texted Mansfield earlier this week and literally said like, oh, Black Coat's Daughter is if I took the song Sweatloaf and turned it into a movie. Here is what the song sounds like. Daddy. Yes, son. What does regret mean? Well, son, a funny thing about regret is that it's better to regret something you have done than to regret something you haven't done. And by the way, if you see your mom this weekend, would you be sure and tell her... Satan! 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 So, yeah. Satan! 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 Yeah, so just replace the word son with daughter, and you kind of have an idea of where Black Code's daughter, the movie, is going. Granted, Sweatloaf is a little bit more kind of comedic, dark comedic, and and Black Coat's Daughter is not comedic at all, but just kind of just the general same idea (laughs) in a lot of ways. So yeah, uh, Black Coat's Daughter, uh, once again, like always, before we get into it, we will openly be just talking about the movie, what happens in the movie, so... Yeah, this movie especially is difficult to discuss without involving spoilers, because... There is so much visual storytelling from start to finish, so it's it's difficult to really discuss it without just going right into spoilers. And so for your, you scaredy cats out there like me, I will say that Mansfield made it a mission to have this movie be kind of the first one to really get under my skin. And I gotta say, kind of, at least a little bit, mission accomplished. Like, it's a creepy as fuck movie. Low on the jump scares, I think only had, like, maybe two or three jump scares that actually got me. There are scenes that, like, go from just slow to intense very quickly, but not necessarily, like, justifying a full jump scare. So, if jump scares is the only thing that bothers you, this is a good, another good movie to kind of watch if you kind of want to dip your toes into to kind of psychological, supernatural horror. But... It is a disturbing movie in, in a lot of ways, especially if you're someone like me, you had kind of a, a Catholic upbringing where you went to Catholic school from pre-K through senior of high school. <laughs> Once again, the New Orleans education system is kind of fucked. So this movie kind of clicked for me, in a, even on a personal level, and it creeped me out. It, it was one of those movies where it doesn't necessarily scare you right off the bat, and which granted, it is scary. It's one of those movies that kind of, it does, it gets under your skin a little bit, you start thinking about it, and it the more you think about it after you after the credits roll the more it kind of like creeps you out i definitely had a little bit of trouble sleeping for a couple nights after watching this movie and i had one or two nightmares kind of sort of related to this movie i can't remember the details now but it definitely like fucked with my sleep schedule a little bit it it was it was definitely one of the first ones to even get on my skin even worse than like it follows did it's very atmospheric there's a lot of creeping dread in this movie and when it does decide that it wants to go all in it goes 
this was a movie that I saw, I don't know, last year or year before last. I can't remember exactly when it came out. And for note, too, this movie came out almost two years after it was actually made. And it came out under, you know, a different title here in the States, which was The Black Coat's Daughter, which doesn't quite mean anything um, other than the song that's used in the movie. But it was originally titled February when it came out and was hitting the festival circuit. You know, for instance, Emma Roberts in this movie was not really well known at the time that it was made. Her career was just starting a little bit by that point. But when the movie actually came out, she'd already been in American Horror Story and Scream Queens and several other things. So um, this is another good example of a fantastic horror movie that just nobody can seem to like sell and market for some reason cabin in the woods kind of had the same problem i love that movie it's fantastic that movie sat for a few years before it actually ended up coming out because dot 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 um and it's hilarious because you go back and it's you know chris hemsworth before he was thor and so it would have been very interesting to have that out at the time, but that was also kind of part of the novelty of when it did come out was, oh, Thor's in this, you know, after the fact, so. A, a lot of friends of mine, and even myself for a little while, because I did know Cabin in the Woods, I did hear about it quite a bit, but I only heard about it, I think, through you, and then I only really heard about it, like, once it did make that Netflix circuit where, like, people, it started getting people on people's radar, and, yeah, I was like, oh, apparently he made a movie after Thor that I didn't know about, and it was this movie. And I was like, no, wait a minute. He technically filmed that before he was Thor. Yep. It's just that it, like, finally jumped in popularity after Thor, and maybe maybe his popularity in Thor was kind of what helped, I guess, catapult that. Black Hood's Daughter, even with Emma Roberts in it, which I didn't realize she was in it until I just sat down and started watching, I was like, and saw her character. Even before any of that, I, th- I had not heard really much of anything about this movie until, until you had told me to watch it, and I watched it, and then I did look up a little bit afterwards about it and yeah it, it it does make the it does make the circuit between like horror film fans but it's still it, it didn't quite even get the popularity that cabin in the woods got at least from like a, a casual standpoint yeah and one thing in general my my mission part of my mission with this podcast not only to help people maybe expose themselves to movies that they normally wouldn't um, but also just to call awareness to some really fantastic indie horror movies, um, especially ones that are fairly widely available like this one that a lot of people have access to if they have just basic stuff like Netflix. Um, There's lots of good indie horror on there, but I get it. Netflix is tough nowadays to know what to watch because you just have to sift through so much and their algorithms of how they recommend things are just, it's nuts. It's hard to tell the quality of a movie just based on the thumbnail that they give you. So, you know, there's plenty of good indie horror out there. You know, this is one of the best times for horror movies in general, just because there's not anything good in the, like, megaplexes right now. I mean, there's The Nun, which, okay, whatever, but... There's lots and lots of good stuff happening on the indie scene right now, but if we can call attention to that, even if it's stuff that's been out for a few years, there's still a lot of people who haven't seen it. Well, yeah, and it also helps too, though, that out in the like the megaplexes and, and the main movie circuit, you do have it that just like shattered records and everything, and is getting a sequel, which is now one of like the most hyped movies that's coming out that isn't a superhero related movie. Overall, this was a good past year for like big cinema. I mean. Get Out was huge. It was huge. It is getting a sequel, like you said. I mean, there's there's definitely good stuff happening in the Megaplex, just not quite at the rate that indie horror is. Oh, no, yeah, I agree with you there. Before we before we dive into the actual plot, 
I just want it like right up front again. As far as like jump scares go, very minimal, not any worse or better than in, in that department than the other stuff we've recommended up till this point. This movie is like it follows is very atmospheric. I would say it got under my skin a lot more than it follows did for it being an indie horror movie. And I'm not saying like it follows was a little bit up its own ass to the point there were a couple things that bothered us like it trying to be timeless but then having like cell phones and shit like that that bothered me a little bit. This movie wasn't really up its own ass kind of in any way. There was that little bit of dreamlike quality of everyone acting kind of off like they're not real people like it taking place in a nightmare but it wasn't it wasn't so noticeable or didn't take away so much, at least in my opinion, of what the movie was about and trying to be like it did in It Follows. So I guess my point is that this this indie horror movie is not up its own ass, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's incredibly stylish. I do think it does a better job of the whole timelessness thing because it doesn't directly involve as much technology to really date it. The one piece of technology that's you know, very much in the movie is a payphone. And that's kind of one of the oddities of the movie, but it does set it in a very kind of indistinct time frame. This movie was directed by Oz Perkins, who is the son of Anthony Perkins, uh, better known as Norman Bates. His brother Elvis also did the music, which the music in this movie is fucking fantastic. Um, I really love all of the, not synthesizer, but the, uh, not thermidor, not thermostat, not thermometer. I can't help you. Theremin. Theremin, okay. <laughs> yes, I, I love all the, uh, I love all the theremin stuff that's in this movie. The cast, as we mentioned a second ago, is Emma Roberts. Kiernan Shipka, who's been around for a while, uh, she is about to be in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix, which I'm kind of pumped about. I've I've read the comics that have come out for that, and they are solid, because uh, this is kind of going off topic for one second. The Archie line of comics is making a comeback, like they, they kind of started a more modern-day Archie that Mark Wade had, uh, was writing. But then they also did an afterlife with Archie, and it's almost become Archie Horror is now its own label under the Archie comics. So they now have like Jughead the Hunger, which is about Jughead being a werewolf. They have Veronica being a vampire. And then, yeah, they had Sabrina, the teenage witch, but Dunn is like, oh no, she's like a satanic witch in this little town of Salem. I gotta check those out. That sounds. They're kind all of solid. Fun. It's very good um, horror comedy. Yeah, I gotta check that out. I know, like predator versus archie and like the archie afterlife stuff i just saw this giant splash page with like one of them being sacrificed to cthulhu so i'm interested i need to check that out the afterlife with archie is like yeah it's all about like zombies but then also like other just fucked up like entities being involved and then yeah jugheads the werewolves veronica's vampires etc rounding out the cast too we have lucy boynton and we have the great james remar in this cast, there is a fun connection to something that you and I both like that is not at all horror-related. 
any idea what that is. No, uh-uh. So James Remar and Kiernan Shipka both voiced characters in The Legend of Korra. Yeah, because I did see that Shipka did Janora. Yep, and um, James Remar did Tone Rock. Holy shit, I did not know that. That's awesome. <laughs> So that's two major characters in this movie who voice characters in a kid's cartoon. Gotta love it. And also, too, like, just between, like, Lucy and Keeman, there's, like, and, and uh, even Emma Roberts, there's so much, like, horror-related content that all three of them have kind of been tied to. Yeah. Uh, I think all three of them, or two of them at least, could even be designated as Scream Queens for the amount of stuff they've been in that's horror-related. Also, Lauren Hawley is in this movie, who, she was she was uh, Jim Carrey's wife, wasn't she, for a little while? And then she's also been in a whole bunch of shit, too, right? The main thing that I know her from is still just Dumb and Dumber. That's right. Yep. She's been in a lot of stuff over the years as well. Yeah, I've just kind of pulled up her page on Wikipedia real fast, and yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff. So yeah, for for a directorial debut, which granted, I mean, this is the son of Anthony Perkins, so he's got connections already, Um, but for a directorial debut, great cast, great look. From a technical standpoint, the movie is made incredibly well. Um, Again, the soundtrack by Elvis Perkins is also fantastic. Just from a technical standpoint alone, this is definitely a movie everyone should check out. So that being said, unless you have anything else to mention, we can go ahead and get into the plot a little bit. If you're if you are wanting to avoid spoilers, just from my standpoint, this is a great movie. I liked this probably more than The Sentinel, and The Sentinel was the movie that I was looking forward to the most out of the first five or six that we had lined up, and I like this one more than that. I'd give it probably like a solid 8, 8.5. As far as horror goes, it's it's going to sit with you. It's going to get under your skin. It, it creeped me out pretty, pretty badly after I watched it, so just kind of keep that in mind. Now, granted, your experiences might be a little bit different than mine because there was the Catholic school tied to it that kind of did make it a little bit creepier to me. I'm not an like I'm not active Catholic anymore, but it might you know it's part of my childhood, so it did kind of sit with me more than I thought it would. Yeah, this is something that I figured specifically would get to you a little bit more because it does directly deal with supernatural horror, specifically like demons and Satanism and position and real life trauma that's kind of caused by a lot of that. Which that's something that we would definitely need to talk about. Um, as we get into this movie. Yeah, absolutely. That said, let's go ahead and kind of run through the plot a little bit. So yeah, right right off the bat, it's kind of set up that, you know, the, and Mansfield had mentioned earlier that this movie originally was marketed with the title of February, which I actually kind of like The Black Code's Daughter better as the title of this movie, and we'll get into why later on, but it does make sense why this movie was originally called February because it takes place in February and the first thing we're treated to is this kind of haunting dream. The character of Kat who is played by Shipka who while I while I have this on my brain she does a fantastic job in this movie oh, yeah. and she was like what 14, 15 at the time of this being filmed maybe younger than that. She was young. She just knocks out of the park like she does the creepy as fuck little girl real damn well <laughs> and I'll get more into that later but The thing that gets to me about her performance especially, she looks a good bit like my little cousin. And that, like, evil little kid smile that she does is so much more disturbing when you see it on a teenager. Just that strange, like, the edges of your mouth kind of curling up and you're, like, smiling to yourself because you know something. But clearly everybody else is like, what the hell are you up to? You know, like, that that bothers me so bad. And it, it reminds me so much of my little cousin. 
Yeah, and it's not like it's not like the smile that the girl made in the Paranormal Activity movie made, like towards the end when she was kind of also possessed, like where it's like this big almost like grin of or smile that's almost like distortion face, where it's like okay, obviously this is like no, no, no the little the smiles that she uh, that cat makes in this movie are very small. Like Mansfield did a perfect job of describing them, like smiling to yourself because you know this dark secret or this funny thing that no one else knows and. And then you played off as if like, oh no, I was just, I was just kind of daydreaming. Nothing, nothing major. It's just creepy as fuck. It's, and it's creepy as fuck without being over the top, like, like being like a Cheshire cat. But anyway, and I'm glad you, uh, I was going to save this for later, but another thing that creeped me out about this movie, like you'd mentioned how this reminded you of a family member. She reminded me of people I knew back in high school because I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, but we also had sister schools who that were like all-girl Catholic high schools, and I had quite a lot of friends that went to other girl Catholic high schools. And yeah, the, I, I saw girls that looked like her, and maybe even not to the extent that this movie gets into, but acted a little bit like her as well. That was part of the thing that got under my skin a little bit. Is like, oh shit, I knew these girls like growing up. These are people I knew and a couple of them I'm still even friends with now. Um, but anyway, so we're opened up to this kind of creepy dream that Kat is having where it shows a car, which you can assume is her family car just smashed and she awakens from this dream and it, like the way it's shot and everything is it's it almost is a more of a vision than a dream in a lot of ways you get some flashes she's walking with somebody who you don't see who this person is but she just asks like is that the car you know where's mom um so this is you don't necessarily put the pieces together immediately but this is definitely her kind of having some foreshadowing of what's going to happen later this movie again is very good at the whole show don't tell type of storytelling and there's a lot that you really need to be paying attention to and inferring and it does a good job of not beating you over the head with what's happening so it it leaves a lot for you to put together and on second viewing this movie does play really well because you start to kind of connect the dots a lot more from the beginning and see little bits and pieces of things that you didn't pick up on first go around because you didn't think they were important or they weren't massive like they there wasn't massive attention drawn to them so that's one thing i really like about this movie as well you're right after because i I actually went back and watched that opening scene again after i had went through the entire movie and had better understanding of what was happening and i caught a lot more of the smaller details there is more to that scene than than you think on upon second viewing she wakes up from this dream and she kind of just like kind of walks over to her calendar and marks like marks it off like what day it is and it's i think february 21st and then the next day february 22nd is when her mom and dad are supposed to pick her up because they're all about to leave for for the weekend or for a winter break then we're introduced to lucy boynton's character rose she's kind of talking with a friend of hers she's worried that she might be pregnant because her and her boyfriend or the guy she's been seeing uh had sex over a weekend and the whole time they're doing this like they're like by a window and smoking like trying to hide that they're smoking and this, this scene kind of made me laugh a little bit because, like, this is totally, like, conversations that I've either, either been a part of or just kind of, you know, friends through friends heard while I was in high school. Just, like, 
oh shit, I missed my period by a couple days. Does this mean I'm pregnant? Which like, no, that's not how that works. But in a Catholic setting, it would make sense that they would have conversations where they might not have all the information because a church or a uh, school run by a Catholic institution or Catholic church is probably not doing a great job of teaching them birth control beyond abstinence, which, you know, is bullshit. But that's a whole nother topic for another time. It's kind of funny, too, when we're introduced to Rose beyond her talking with her friend about whether or not she's being pregnant. She's actually getting her picture taken for, like, the yearbook. She kind of walks in slowly and, and sits in front of the, the backdrop for the picture. You had mentioned, like, Elvis Perkins. I thought the, the mix that they played during this scene was, a, like, a mix between Silent Hill and David Lynch. Just, it, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty great score when she was walking in. So as we're moving on, as, as you're kind of getting more scenes just showing like this boarding school and that they're about to close down for the weekend or for winter break, and they there's mentions of like a snowstorm coming, and uh, they're the next thing you know they're at the they're like in the headmaster's office, and it's Cat and Rose just kind of through the conversations that they're having with the two nuns and the headmaster, as well as what was inferred earlier. Rose told her parents the wrong date when to pick her up and when she tells us headmaster she says like oh it was an accident I forgot I I mixed up the dates but you kind of realize that no she wants to actually meet up with her boyfriend to discuss her possibly being pregnant and then with Kat this is kind of when like Kat is becoming distant and when Mansfield mentioned earlier is kind of having those grins and people asking like what's so funny and she's like oh nothing the phone call that she makes her parents initially when they're both just kind of in the principal's office, it's it's very forced and fake. Like, you can tell that she's just kind of going through the motions on that phone call, even though she knows she's not actually talking to anybody. At this point, you're kind of wondering, like, oh, are the parents actually dead, or is she just kind of more upset that they're not there yet? Does she wonder if they did die in that car crash, if that dream she had was a vision and rather than a dream and anyway so they basically ask rose to watch over cat since rose is the older girl junior senior and cat is a freshman they they leave it at that so later on that night um rose basically approaches cat and tells her she's going out and does it in a very like i'm a senior you're a freshman fuck off i don't tell anybody yeah. yeah don't tell anyone fuck off i can make your life at school a living hell if you do tell people you're just a little kid you take care of yourself i don't feel like dealing with your shit basically cat keeps saying like no he told us to stay here uh and she's just like like the headmaster and she's like he told us to stay here and so rose basically tries to like get on her skin by saying that like there's this rumor going around that the nuns at the school are devil worshipers she's just like yeah you know if if you're not careful they'll they'll get you blah 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 stuff that shit that like i mean i remember there was a story that went around of an abandoned insane asylum that was like behind one of the neighborhoods of like some of our friends like shit like that 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 people say when they're high school middle school yeah she was just trying to scare her yeah yeah exactly so she leaves Kat alone, Rose that is, and she gets in the car with her boyfriend. Then the scene transitions back to Kat, and she hears a payphone ringing in the halls, and so she walks over to, to, to the hall to pick up the payphone. It transitions back to later on that night, and Rose is being dropped back off with her boyfriend, and again, this is another one of those like like teenage conversations that like I've either been like present for or heard friend through from friend of just like the boy being like do you want me to bring you neither one of us wants this child this would ruin our lives 
yada yada. And Rose, the actress, does a great job conveying that Rose is very unsure of what she wants to do, but she keeps saying, like, no, I'll do it. I'll take care of it myself. And, her, and like, basically, like, not wanting the boyfriend to know what she's going to do. And so it just kind of ends with them, like, on that awkward note, and she gets out and, like, goes back to the the school and as she's entering the dorm room or wherever they stay she goes to like the bathroom and while she's like preparing to go to bed she starts hearing strange noises like coming from the vent and then this is where like in my brain i'm just like oh this is where we're transitioning from like sort of realistic to oh this is a horror movie because this character would does something that i would never in a fucking million years do i don't care what i was hearing through event so so let's talk about that for a second yeah yeah i wanted to if we're talking about why this movie's effective like what fears this is playing on isolation is definitely a very common fear there's something about being alone in the dark Especially in somewhere like this, where this this dormitory on the school campus is very dark. That's kind of the best way that I can describe it. Like, there's lots of shots down the hallway where you might see one light on in the very center of the building, but the ends of the hallways are completely pitch black. There's lots of natural lighting during the day, but it's that very kind of effusive winter light where there is no actual direct light happening it's just still the sun is out but it can't quite penetrate through the cloud layer so it's a very weird kind of haunting light that's mostly shadow so even in the daytime scenes there's still so much darkness and it it makes for super gorgeous cinematography it's just very unnerving because these buildings are so empty and these girls are by themselves i mean it's these two girls who are staying in the same dorm and it looks like they might be you know just further down the hallway from each other but there's just something about being in a building by yourself where you know you should be alone and then things happen where you think wait maybe i'm not alone and that's always super disturbing it reminds me a lot of growing up the church that our family used to go to Uh, my mother was involved in the music stuff that happened there and there were times where we would be at the building before church started or maybe after church started so that she could rehearse um, music with people or just whatever but there were so many times where just being in the church as a kid in this big empty building and this was the kind of church i mean a lot of people might be familiar with this style of it's not we weren't like a mega church but it was more than just like a chapel area so you would just roam around all these classrooms and all these empty places where the lights were either completely all shut off to save power or there was maybe one central light on but it throws a lot of shadows and there's just something really strange about that feeling of like isolation in a place like that it kind of gets to you after a while so that's something that this movie definitely you know is playing on and so yeah when she comes home from this date with her boyfriend and she's expecting to just go in things like normal she starts hearing all these sounds like from the building itself it's just this very strange like almost child's voice but you can't quite make out what the voice is saying and it seems to just be coming from the building itself and its bowels and she starts to track down this sound that it eventually does take her down into the basement area that's kind of where the plot picks up from there is she's down in this basement area and she peeks into the area with the furnace and sees somebody doing something very creepy 
Um, and I'll let Derek like say what that is in a second, but that's just where again, nope. Just get out of that fucking building out of period. No. Like there's just no way that you would stay in that building after seeing something like that. Um, so it's just super creepy. Uh, and and two, the whole like furnace room that they show you is really disturbing because it's this very terrifying looking metal furnace with just this glowing in it very subtly and that's just a weird thing to me because we don't have fucking furnaces down here in the south that's just not a thing we have air conditioners because guess what it's cold for maybe two and a half months of the whole year so furnaces are just like a weird thing to me that you have this giant combustion engine in your basement yeah, it's very rustic. It's very much like, oh, this building was originally built in like the 30s or 40s, and we haven't quite updated the furnace yet. Yeah, what's well, like fucking Home Alone? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> like a more demonic Home Alone. Yeah, the giant fucking furnace that's like the giant laundry pl- laundry press from the Mangler. It's just this like ridiculously too huge, creepy fucking thing, and I don't, I don't know. It's just weird. Maybe on a subconscious level, that's why this movie worked for me so well as as a horror movie. Because when I was a kid, the one thing that I hated about Home Alone was the furnace scenes. Like, they legit scared me when I was a little kid, just like they did Macaulay Culkin's character. There are a couple things that you had brought up that I actually wanted to to make note before we, like, describe what actually she sees in the boiler room. You did a good job with, like, the lighting and the feeling of isolation. There are so many parts in this movie where it's just like the shining's influence is kind of all over this like yeah just the way that I, the heavy feeling of isolation the soundtrack um at one point i even made a note of like because like after rose leaves with her boyfriend it kind of goes back to show cat starting to be like do creepy shit like she won't like because like one of the things rose says is like don't touch any of my shit while i'm out well rose leaves cat watches her leave in the car and cat starts messing with her shit now when i say that it's not like a little freshman's like going through my shit like taha to fuck you to spite you know she's doing it like a really creepy way like she touches her hairbrush like strokes it and then like looks through her diary but like does it in a very like serial killer way she picks up the packet of school photos that we saw her take earlier yep. and just kind of stares at the you know the cover photo on it and at one point i even made a notation of of like what if Rose came back, like, the next scene is Rose comes back, and she looks through her journal or her diary, and it's, like, all work and no play makes Cat a dull girl, like, just written all over. <laughs> but, yeah, even the lighting itself, because, like you were saying, even the hallways, like, this is a dorm room, so there are, like, the at least in the hallway areas, light is going to be on 24-7, but it's that fluorescent light where it's not necessarily lighting the whole hallway, like you had mentioned, but even the areas that are lit up, like the public bathroom, that she hears the noises and everything. It's kind of that just that dim light of just still it feels dark, even though it's lit up, if that makes any sense. It actually reminded me of a moment when we were in uh, college when I was actually a freshman, and me and Nowacki, our buddy Nowacki, were in the same room. And it was actually one of the nights that we had a party in our dorm room, and that night we were supposed to get really bad weather like overnight. After the party ended, we had all passed out. I woke up in the middle of the night, like when I say middle of the night, it was like four or five in the morning. And I woke up to like heavy rain, tons of thunder, and no one was awake because everyone was like drunk and passed out. And I woke up with really bad heartburn because I had just drank a shit ton and then immediately went to bed. I was like super thirsty and we didn't have any water in our dorm room, but the hallway had a, a water fountain. So I walk into the hallway 
and it's dead quiet. It's five in the fucking morning. The only thing I'm hearing is a storm outside. I mean, it's lit up by fluorescent lights because it's it's a hallway of a dorm room. And I, I wander down the hallway, get some water. And I'm just like, I have that feeling of like eyes are on me, but no one's there. Of just like a haunting feeling. I'm sitting there getting water. And all of a sudden, a siren goes off like as if it's silent fucking hill. I just like get so creeped out. And like, I feel like I'm hearing noises like downstairs and everything. And the wind's kicking up. And I run back to the dorm room. Amelia run back into the room with Nowacki. Realize Nowacki's still there and alive. And then I go back to bed and just like, nope. I didn't hear that. That siren didn't know. Uh, later on, I, I would come to find out that like that was the tornado alarm, and none of us, <laughs> like no one, no one responded to it like we were supposed to because we had all just partied hard and just passed out. It was the it, it was the storm. Like a tornado was spotted in the area, and we probably should have all evacuated into the hallway, but none of us did. But yeah, that night it it creeped me out so bad and there was nothing supernatural about it. This is kind of like this scene leading up to her wandering down to the boiler room. Like that was the first memory that popped in my mind when it happened. So when she, once she makes it to the boiler room and she kind of peeks in through the window of the door, she basically sees cat prostrating in front of the lit boiler and cats just making these, like, I guess, worshiping motions. Like, like I was saying, she's, she's prostrating in front of it. It's, it's kind of, you could say it's almost a little bit of a jump scare. It didn't quite get me, but it was nonetheless fucking weird to see. It's also her movements are very intense and violent and mechanical as well. It's a very, very, very eerie motion that she's doing, just kind of, you know, throwing herself down and bowing before this thing over and over and over and popping back up again. Um, It's a very strange and unnatural thing to just, like, walk in and see somebody doing. And then, uh... And then the movie kind of like this is where things really start kind of turn it on it on its head because then the very next scene is we're treated to this girl named Joan played by Emma Roberts getting off a bus and she goes to the bathroom in the bus station and cleans herself. There's like this flashback this really and this was a jump scare for me There's a quick flashback to a psych ward and her like tearing off her bracelet off her wrist. When it shows the psych ward, you're not shown any of the... Like, you're shown the doctors and nurses or, who, or the staff of the psych ward, but you're not shown their faces. It's all, like, shadows, basically. Like, these are shadow people. And, like, she was tearing off her hospital bracelet off her wrist. So you, you infer that, like, this is a patient of a psych ward that either escaped or, like, left the psych ward or whatever. So she attempts to make a, a call on the payphone. and But when she does, creepily enough, the, the whatever number she called was disconnected. So she's kind of sitting outside waiting either for the next bus or just kind of trying to figure out like what she wants to do. And then randomly this guy named Bill, who is played by James Remar, he comes up to her and offers her a ride. You know, at first it's kind of like played up of just like, oh, this is a guy being really creepy to a girl by herself at night at a bus stop. And then he like, but he like motions over to his car. He's just like, oh, no, no, my wife is in there. My wife, Linda, like, we'll off like this is there's nothing weird about this. We'll offer you a ride. So she actually accepts it and she gets in the back seat of the car and you can tell immediately his wife, Linda, who is played by um by Lauren Hawley, is not on board with this. It's kind of just like annoyed that she's there and but like kind of just like, well, whatever, let's just get this over with. Let's go. While Joan is in the back seat, she sees a bouquet of flowers. It fast forwards a little bit 
and Joan wakes up in a hotel room. It's obvious that they stopped for the night um, because the ice was either getting too bad or they still had a ways to go. Bill had got Joan her own hotel room. And so she takes a shower, and while she's, like, undressing, it shows a bullet scar on her shoulder. And then this another sudden flashback, which may be a, uh, a jump scare for some people. didn't quite get me. But as soon as she, like, touches the scar on her shoulder, there's a flashback of a police shooting a rifle. So you kind of infer that, like, at one point, either she had a confrontation with this policeman and that, that's what like, brought her to the psych ward or whatever. And then after that scene ha- occurs, Bill knocks on the door, comes in, and it's really weird because Bill, it's shown that he is a sweet man and his intentions are, for the most part, pure. But just the way that this movie portrays the things he says and, like, him coming into her hotel room when it's just the two of them and she's she isn't in any clothes, she's only in her bath towel. yeah. And it does it on purpose. It, it, it makes it to like, like we had kind of touched on it in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it follows of just like, you really can't trust anybody. And even with Bill, who is trying to come across as genuine, there's still this creepy, weird, fucked up vibe to it because the conversation they have, like, is him asking her if she believes in God and tells her, like, that's the reason why he picked her up. But he does it in such a quiet and weird way. And just like anytime anyone tells you something like that, especially in this type of setting, there is a degree of weirdness to it. You can tell he means well, and ultimately there's nothing that he does that is very blatantly off-color, but it just all comes across as incredibly patronizing, weird disconnect. Either he's doing it on purpose or he's just not super self-aware, but just being in the hotel room with her while she's in nothing but a towel and you can tell she's visibly like uncomfortable and he's not picking up on those cues and then he just kind of goes right into the proselytizing like to me that just it kind of screams like i know what's best for you and i'm gonna like father you like you can tell he's definitely you know like missing his daughter you know ultimately he's kind of an odd character in this for sure and the irony of the whole conversation that they have while they're in her room is kind of staggering you know it's he's right but it's not god's plan that they came across each other and that they happen to be going to the same relative place and you know they just happen to bump into each other at the same time like it it's it's definitely a plan it's just not necessarily god's plan yeah and um it's not necessarily the pathway that him and his wife it's not a pathway that's meant for them specifically so that's kind of all i'll say for right now while he's in her room still he says like it's like oh you must be hungry let's let's go get something to eat you know get changed and meet me downstairs and she asks like oh where's your wife he's like oh she's asleep i'll you know let's leave her alone so yeah again still that's there's that patronizing weird undercurrent so the next scene is them at either a nearby restaurant they're having another conversation and he's going more into like why these things happen for a reason and he reminds her of his daughter again and this time he shows joan a picture of his daughter and his daughter is rose and he explains to her that she died nine years ago and so the next scene is joan excusing herself and going to the bathroom where she kind of like lets out this creepy giggle like she goes into like she looks around to make sure no one's in the in the bathroom with her and she lets out this really creaky creepy giggle and then there's another flash memory of her straight up strangling or killing a woman and then stealing the identification card and the identification card shows the name joan on it so obviously joan is not who she says she is you kind of can see where this is starting to turn 
after she exits the bathroom, she sees Bill talking to a cop and she kind of like hides behind the corner and like she's kind of sort of close to the kitchen. And while the while Bill and the cop are talking, she looks at a knife from uh, like a bus tray, like one of the bus boys had. And then it transitions to the next scene. So I'll bring this up later once once we get through talking to the movie because this was the one small detail that did bother me about this movie but we'll get to that so bill tells her that they have to get going because there is a storm coming and so joan gets in the car and linda is already there waiting and bill is still inside either like paying the bill or whatever getting their stuff and this scene was also kind of a creepy scene in general because linda basically talks to joan and tells her that you're not the first girl he does this with a lot of young women like who are either in need or seem like they're in trouble where he he goes up to them tells them like you remind me of my daughter rose and that's why i want to help you then like the scene ends with linda basically telling rose like or like i don't see uh, rose in you at all in fact I don't see any, like, I can't see you at all is the line she says. Yeah, and that was a really creepy fucking thing to say. That's to such a creepy fucking line. And Joan is silent the entire time. Like, Joan's looking at her, but, like, not responding to this. Yeah, I don't see you at all is such a creepy fucking line to say. And you can tell she's probably been drugged into this whole process. The wife, Linda, specifically. And you can tell that this is probably all Bill's idea. This is something he wanted to do. This is just some journey that he makes every year and that he just kind of drags her along for. Because she's, every time that she, you know, jumps into the conversation, she's very, you know, kind of uncomfortable with it. She's kind of lost patience for the whole thing. And that moment especially, she's just very, like, exasperated, for sure. And you can tell she's just not happy being there. So... We actually go back to Rose and Cat, and Rose is basically kind of like tucking Cat in, try like trying to reassure. And Rose is at this point understandably like freaked out, like what the fuck were you doing down there? You basically can infer that like Rose opened up the boiler room, interrupted whatever Cat was doing, and was like, "What are you doing?" And then they had this really weird conversation about how like Cat tells Rose that her parents aren't coming because she knows they're already dead, and Rose is just like, "I'm gonna stay with." you like i'll watch over you blah blah and cat says like it's already too late for you you already had your chance yeah and like she's whispering all this as she's like kind of like rolled over like in her bed and so rose is just kind of like sitting there dumbfounded for a second and it was just like yeah so you go to sleep now i'm gonna go back to my room and rose does like probably what i would do i mean if in this situation i don't know i wouldn't maybe leave the goddamn dorm room but she does do like a smart move. She goes back to her room and then she like bars her door with her chair. Like she moves like shit in front of her door to be like, no, this kid, something's off with this kid. And I don't want her to come into my room while I'm asleep at night. Probably the scene that kind of got me the worst. And I would say this is a jump scare. It was for me is like, it shows what's going on that night. The camera is showing cat in her bed and she's like, kind of like making noises and like moving around, jerking around. Like she's having a bad dream. And then suddenly, like, her body bends backward, like, unnaturally, like, demonically. And, like, you see her legs kind of over her head. And it just happens, like, so quick, and it's so sudden, and it flashes away in, like, a, in, like, a second or two. And this happens right around, like, the 41-minute mark. And this, this scene creeped me out quite a bit. This one got me. This was probably the scariest scene for me of the entire movie. It's a scene that you've seen before and other movies but the way that it's initially set up in this one's a little bit different because you know you saw her get into bed and kind of pull the blankets up but then when it cuts back to this scene 
she's facing the opposite direction in her bed. The covers are like completely on her in the opposite way. Like they're covering her head and you like see her feet hanging out the other end. It almost looks like she's having a seizure, but at the same time, like, how did she get completely flipped around in bed? And then she does, like, the back bend kind of thing that's so creepy and that we've seen in other stuff before. So the setup of it kind of makes it, you know, more weird. And I'll say, like, there's very little about this movie that I'm not hot on. That moment... And then there's one or two instances where she kind of has an altered voice in the next few scenes... Those moments I don't quite dig. Like, that's the kind of stuff where I wish maybe those two things had just been left out. And I'll kind of get to that reason in a little bit further. But just kind of know, like, those are the two things I kind of wish were maybe a little bit different. I can kind of agree with you there. I, what I would say is that I would keep this scene in, but I would have moved it, like, maybe later on into the movie. I think revealing it, like, at this end, like, being like okay, okay, yeah, like, Cat is possessed or just fucked up in some way. Like, revealing it this quickly, which, you know, it's not super quick. It's 40-plus minutes into the movie. Yeah, it's like halfway through the movie. But it still just felt a little too soon in my mind. And then, yeah, I would just cut out the voice thing that you mentioned altogether, but we'll get to that. But this this scene did do it for me. I did. I would say I would still like to keep this scene in the movie. Like, if you're looking to creep people out, this is a, a good scare. At least it was for me. That's just kind of my own opinion. So after that, like, shows the next day, and, and they're at the breakfast table with the nuns who are who are chaperoning them. And it's implied that the nuns have their own house off to the side of the dorm room, so they're there. And they are basically saying grace. And during the prayer, Kat starts acting strangely like she's like... She's got that weird kid giggle, man. Kid giggle, weird, like, like... sideways kind of smile. Yeah, yeah, that weird sideways smile, kid giggle, like she... Like this is all a joke, but no one really knows the punchline except her. The chaperones are like like annoyed at her. They're like, all right, Kat, fine, you lead the prayer. So she starts like praying, but like she starts stuttering and like is having trouble saying the prayer. And then when the chaperones start getting on her more and like scolding her, she stands up and just starts vomiting. I mean, like projectile spit vomit as they like try to like help her out. She starts like lashing out at them and getting mad at them. While all of this commotion's going on, Mr. Gordon, who was the headmaster, he basically like calls them, telling them that he's on his way back from the school. And it's implied that like Kat's parents did die in a car crash on the way. And like while all commotions happening like rose is trying to like help cat the nuns say like rose just we got this under control just go shovel the driveway you need to shovel the driveway of snow for so before he gets here and right before that moment that's where the voice thing happens that i'm not huge on um after she throws up you see the nuns kind of giving her a medical once over rose is asking rather you know is she sick is she okay and the whole time, Kat just has that weird, like, dazed look on her face, and she's kind of smiling. You can tell her color is starting to get off a little bit, and she's starting to get bags under her eyes. There's a moment where one of the nuns goes to, like, touch her forehead or something, and she says, you know, don't touch me, and drops the C word, and it's in a slightly weird, altered demon kind of voice. Um, that moment's the other one that I mentioned a second ago that I'm not 
huge on. Like, you can maybe keep that moment in for this shock effect, but the demon voice is something that I'm not hot on. So that's interesting, because I didn't quite catch that on my viewing of when she drops a C word of it being kind of a different voice. The voice thing that I was thinking of actually comes later, and we'll get to it. We're almost there. After Rose is done shoveling, like, it cuts forward a little bit in time. She's done shoveling the driveway. She tries to get back into the chaperone's house, either to check in with them, see how Kat's doing, or, like, to return the shovel. And the doors are locked, and, like, she can't get in the house, so she said, thinks nothing of it, so she goes back to the dorm room. We then cut to Mr. Gordon arriving at the house, and he's actually accompanied by a police officer. It's kind of implied that maybe either something amiss that he knows about, or, like, the police are there to explain to Kat that, like, her parents have passed, and yada yada. So he enters the house, that like the chaperone's house. It just shows like his face reacting in horror. I mean, that's all you get. Then it, it goes back to that scene where Kat is seen answering the payphone um, the night that Rose left. And you hear a gravelly voice on the other end of it, basically kind of like telling her that like her parents aren't coming and that she needs to kill everyone. And she even calls the voice, at, like at one point she calls the voice dad. Now this voice is obviously like, kind of like a demonic sounding voice this one didn't bother me too much actually this voice is fine yeah, yeah this, i like this i like this voice the distortion is interesting the electrical static is interesting you can never understand what the voice is actually saying it's just kind of weird half formed words but it's not as gimmicky as just regular speech that has been reversed it's it's definitely creepy yeah and you get enough out of it that like parents aren't coming and you hear the word kill, you get enough from it to realize like what's about to happen. And so then it cuts back forward to obviously what was happening when Rose was sh- shuffling the snow. Cat is seen stabbing the two chaperones to death. One of them is already like done for, like she's just on the ground twitching. And the other is like slowly crawling along the floor, like bleeding everywhere. The way that Keeman portrays Cat at this point is so methodical. And like you were saying when she was found in the boil room earlier, mechanical she just like casually walks upstairs and returns with these two pillowcases and then she like on the chaperone who's like slowly crawling across the floor she like finishes a job and keeps stabbing her we cut back to rose and she's in back in the dorm room and she goes to the bathroom it doesn't show it but like she looks down and like is examining stuff and sighs in relief and you see that like oh she's got her period so she's not pregnant so she's relieved and while this is happening, she hears someone enter the bathroom, like the bathroom door opens, and she like calls out to Cat, and no one answers, and then the door shuts. So Rose gets up and leaves the bathroom, and she goes into the, she's walking down the dorm room, and she goes to the stairwell. She then sees these two bloody heads wrapped in, in pillowcases, and blood just smeared like all along the wall in the corner and the, the window that the heads are at. And she like kind of like backs up into the hallway, and as she's walking back to the hallway, Cat just straight up walks around the corner and walks right up to her and stabs her to death, like, with with the knife. And, like, when I say just walks up to her, like, there's no... It's not like a horror movie, like, her, like, jerking movements and, like, you know, bending backwards or any shit like that. No, she just, like, it's a little girl walking around the corner with a knife and just stab, stab, stab. Like, it's done in such a visceral, again, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, almost just a matter-of-a-fact kind of way of it happening. And honestly, it makes it even scarier than if it were like, oh, she has like this demonic force possessing her now. Like, no, she's just straight up like, this is what a little girl stabbing, a freshman stabbing a senior would look like. Just walk around the corner, stab, stab, stab. 
does it all casually, methodical, mechanical like. This might be a jump scare for some, didn't quite jump scare me, but this is definitely the scene that stuck in my head for a while after I watched the movie. I don't know about you, Mansfield, but, like, even now, like, when I'm walking around the hallways of my house and, like, I'm walking by an open door, I kind of have to, like, sort of move my body in a way to, like, look around the corner <laughs> to make sure Kat's not standing here with a fucking knife about to take my head off. Um, Because, yeah, she stabs her to death and then she starts going at the neck, basically implying that, like, okay, she's about to decapitate Rose as well. Yeah, she, you just see her kind of pick up a big handful of her hair and just pull upward, tugging her head up, and that's kind of where it cuts away. And again, you know, we know it's going to happen because we saw the two bloody pillowcases earlier. Anytime in, in any kind of movie like this where somebody's being murdered and then somebody goes for like, a really weird off-the-wall item, you know that there's, like, a fucked-up reason why that's being pulled in. Like, you don't just go upstairs and, like, grab some pillows unless you're planning to either smother somebody or, even worse, you just rip that pillowcase off and then, you know, a scene or two later you see, like, oh, they're covered in blood. Like, oh, she filled those pillowcases with something. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, putting heads in pillowcases, like any, like you were saying, anytime there's a mundane item that's introduced in a weird way in a horror movie or a slasher film, it's, it's never good. Yeah, it's it's always unnerving because again, it's that it's that break in reality. It's that crossover, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, oh, this could happen. At least this part of it, like maybe not so much the demonic possession part of it, but like the idea of a girl like murdering people and putting their heads in pillowcases. Like, yeah. That could very well be happening somewhere in America right now. We don't know. Yeah, totally. Um, it was very Edmund Kemper of her, actually. Now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Bumblebutt. Bumblebutt Edmund Kemper. So, yeah, so then the scene transitions back to the police officer. And at this point, like, oh, he discovered the bodies, or at least, like, blood and everywhere. And, like, he's following away his way into the boiler room, just like Rose did earlier in the movie. He comes up to the boiler room and kneeling in front of the lit boiler once again, and this time th- surrounded by three of the heads, is Cat. <laughs> I did make a notation of, like, where the fuck was this cop's handgun? Like, he just straight up had this hunting rifle on him, and he's carrying this hunting rifle, like, into a close quarters area. Yeah, like, true. Like, fuck that. I would rather a handgun. Anyway... That was just another thing that kind of stuck stuck out my mind. So when he enters the the boiler room, he sees Cat, and she's still like she's doing that prostrating stuff again. And he turns around, she stands up, and like then the scene kind of gets all weird. Like it gets like the voices are being distorted. It very much sounds like it. It sounds like when you have kind of a rush of blood to the head. Yes. Um, where your hearing kind of becomes very tunneled and echoey. Is just the blood like rushing to your ears that you're kind of hearing. Also, too, on the ground, lined up three in a row like little ducks are the three severed heads. And you don't really see them from the front. You just see like from behind the like messy, sticky, bloody hair. But they're all three just kind of lined up sitting beside her. Yeah, like also staring at the wood boiler. So this scene worked and didn't work at the same time for me, and I'll get to that. So she stands up and she starts be- uh, begins to yell, "Hail Satan!" Straight up, "Hail Satan!" over and over again. And the cop is like sitting there, like saying, "Like drop the knife, drop the fucking knife, like drop it." And she's not doing it. Like she keeps yelling louder and louder, "Hail Satan!" And then this is the part where the voice didn't do it for me because then her voice becomes almost distorted as she's yelling it louder. 
and she starts screaming and it's almost sounds like a demonic like howl that's kind of where the movie lost me a little bit like i wish they would have just kept it more of just like no this is a little girl literally like bloodied and like next to these heads who is just yelling hail satan that alone is creepy as fuck to me enough you didn't necessarily need to make like her voice transform into like this demonic howl and like when that happens he shoots her and she drops a knife like and and it's shown that he shot her in the shoulder so you know like this is like without a shadow of a doubt now if you hadn't guessed already joan is cat in the future so then it starts coming together like why she giggled in the bathroom like when bill showed her a picture and it was her daughter rose because then you start to infer like no this didn't happen because of god's plan this happened because of the other guy's plan yeah totally. the, the hell plan jonah seeing this as like might have seen this as like a sign from from her father quote-unquote satan of like oh the irony of all this is that he's delivered her parents who i fucking murdered her i was the one who did it this goes back to the scene i wanted to also touch this was the one one of the very small problems i had with this movie the scene where the cop talks to bill you would think that if something this fucked up happened i mean we all know ed gein's story and he only killed technically what like two people yeah what he did was like so memorable if something like this happened at all girls catholic high school a little girl possibly getting possessed yelling hail satan after she beheaded three people and had like the heads in a row that's not going anywhere that's becoming lifetime or i mean that's becoming a horror movies that's becoming books or the cops getting a book deal yeah like the priest is getting a book deal that's the one thing yeah and i think i see where you're going but like that's the one thing i don't get is regardless like it's been nine years they would know her face they would know her face exactly they would know her face if she escaped the psych ward and killed a person in the in the process they would it wouldn't just be like oh a cop asking questions around town it would be a fucking manhunt. They would know her fate, like you were saying, especially Rose's own parents. They would know her. Yeah. There's no if ands, buts about it. And maybe that goes back to Bill. Maybe there it's their own fucked up way of coping of just like he sees his daughter's face and all these girls, including the killer of his own daughter. But again, it's just like this is where art horror kind of bleeds into reality to the point where like now it is bothering me a little bit of like this dream logic of just like things not making sense because that's a little too convenient. That's my only small gripe with this movie. Again, it doesn't ruin the movie in any way. It was just kind of one of those things that caused me to pause and be like, well, wouldn't Bill immediately like know who she is? But, you know, whatever. That's my only small complaint. So we're back to Joan, and she's in the car with Bill and Linda. Linda basically reveals to Joan that Rose was murdered nine years earlier, you know, by Cat and getting decapitated. And then after this happened, Joan says she's about to be sick, so Bill pulls over. Joan then slashes Bill's throat, like grabs behind, like from the backseat, grabs behind him, slits his throat, and then starts stabbing Linda to death. Then she goes to work on their heads, puts them in a suitcase, and this scene is a bit different from when she killed Rose because this scene she's more like kind of she, like she throws up, but like it's not the throw up like she had when she was like quote unquote possessed. She's in control. Yeah, she's in control, and she's, like, visibly kind of almost upset with what she did herself. Like, she's disgusted by the process of killing these people and beheading them. This isn't a process that, like, she did either under someone else's control or one that she enjoyed. Like, she didn't enjoy this this time. And we'll get to a reason, like, uh, we're about to get to why that's sort of important to note. So she cuts off their heads and places them in, in a suitcase. 
she carries it back to the boarding school, back to the, the Catholic boarding school, which is now, you know, of course, abandoned and boarded up and everything. And then we cut back to the past for a second where Father Brian, he walks in to visit Kate, who is either in the hospital or the psych ward. And she's like, like handcuffed to the bed. And it's now revealed that Kate is Joan explicitly. And he starts performing an exorcism on her. And Kate starts like having those kind of seizure movements like her back's arching up again and while the exorcism is going she kind of looks over to looks over to her side and you see this shadowy like demonic figure and she's like begging the figure please stay with me please stay with me and the figure disappears and this exorcism scene is interesting because it's not like a cinematic exorcism scene of just like like kind of like an exorcist where it's almost like a this is a battle over over her soul and we're gonna win it it's very again it's almost like blood rush to the head muffled the only thing you can really focus on is her like asking this demonic figure to like stay with her and then it disappearing it's not necessarily there's no like fanfare to it it's just like this really weird creepy scene yeah and just just before all this too it kind of shows us what cat has been kind of seeing and doing throughout the course of the movie so it shows you these moments where you know she initially went to go call her family and the number that she dials she just comes back as this static with a voice on it and she listens to the voice and then she starts to see this shadowy figure and i really dig how this thing is portrayed i don't know i guess we could just call it like you know an entity again but it's essentially just this giant black kind of cloaked form but with really tall pointed ears it almost it its ears almost like a donkey or a kangaroo they're like very tall i don't think they're horns necessarily i didn't take it as horns yeah i i almost looked like like really tall spiky even cat ears or rabbit ears or like yeah kangaroo ears the kangaroo ears yeah. is, is a perfect description for it but you see this form in the corners of the rooms she's in like at one point it flashes back to the moment where Rose is just trying to scare her in the dorm and telling her about the nuns. And Kat's entire reaction to that conversation is is completely recontextualized once you see that she's staring at this figure in the corner behind Rose in the room. She's clearly been seeing this entity, and at some point the entity does kind of take over. Um, and so then, of course, in this exorcism scene, you see it leave her again, and as it's leaving... She says, you know, no, don't go. I think a lot of it is just, you know, she has this vision right at the beginning of her parents dying. And so now she's all alone. And so having this entity that shows up that's, you know, basically there to, like, take care of her, maybe, is just a really disturbing thing to think about. You know, that she's that alone and isolated in this world that that's what she reaches out to. And so ultimately, like, that's kind of where the movie ends. You know, you see Emma Roberts bring the heads of Rose's parents back back to the school she puts them down in the furnace the furnace is clearly cold it's not been lit for years you know you just kind of see her back out on the driveway the road leading up to the school and she just kind of breaks down and starts just sobbing and just screaming because she realizes like you know no matter what she thought it's gone you know she thought that everything was kind of providence and it was all you know, bring her back to this entity that she, you know, once had some kind of connection with. Um, and she went so far as to literally murder two more people. And then that's oh, it. And you know, there is no coming back. 
And I, I took that as like her taking the heads and everything as an offering to get the entity back. Totally. Like when she went to, back to Bullet Room. And the reason why I think it's interesting that those kills were like she was a very different attitude because it very much capitalized on the fact that no, she's alone when she makes those kills. That's her doing that in a way to get the entity back. The entity wasn't with her at that point. Yeah. So that's why she's more disgusted with those kills than she was when she did it to the nuns and to Rose. Yeah, so I think it's a really brilliant way to end the movie to be like, no, you're alone now whether or not you envision this entity yourself and your own psychosis or it was actually a demon. Either way, it's gone. And so now you're just kind of this, you're the serial killer that's kind of all alone in the world now. Yeah. So that was my, that was the thing that I wanted to ask you, Mansfield. And and it's your own interpretation. I don't think it's, I don't think this is the purpose of the movie on whether or not to like actually, this is more just for fun. Do you think it she was actually possessed or do you think it was all in her head? Like it was all just kind of like her reaction to her parents dying. She went insane. She was kind of like maybe a, a mentally sick girl to begin with. What do you think it was? So let's let's talk about this for a moment because this is kind of one of those things in general with society that it slightly bothers me. Um, so I am not religious at all. I haven't been in years and years. So none of that side of it gets to me. I, I like the creepiness, don't get me wrong, but like that's not the stuff that like scares me in real life now. But the way that it's kind of contextualized in this movie, like you said... Is she or is she not being possessed, right? That's part of the reason why I don't necessarily like the one or two moments with, like, the demon voice or her, like, weird backbend thing. The ambiguity of whether or not she's actually possessed I find to be interesting, but I do find it to be somewhat problematic because society, since always, cultures all over the world have always pegged odd behavior and often mental illness as being some kind of possession or like evil spirits or bad juju and it's just simply things that we don't understand it's easier to like cop to saying like oh it's just supernatural it's it's just evil in air quotes right and really it's maybe just a chemical deficiency in that person's brain or it's like some weird fucked up thing about their like upbringing and you know some weird combination of nature and nurture together working to like break this person somehow or another so you know i find it interesting that this movie tries in really just a few small ways to underscore the fact that like she's possessed and i think the movie leans more toward that However, I like the interpretation better that it leaves it ambiguous and up to you as an audience member to, like, decide for yourself what you think. I do also think the danger in that is it can reinforce a lot of the more wrong-headed, traditional ways of thinking, which are just like, well, yeah, of course she was possessed by a demon. That's, there's, nobody would do that otherwise, but, like, no, there's plenty of fucking people who have murdered people in cold blood for very, like, weird, fucked-up reasons, and a lot of it's just because they had, you know, some kind of mental health issue. And where I'm torn on that is, you know, like we shouldn't at the same time demonize people with mental health issues. Yeah, see, that's where I, to play, I mean, because I agree with you for the most part on all of this, just to play devil's advocate and keep the discussion and going a little bit. Regardless, this movie runs a risk of that attitude towards people with mental illness, regardless, either the traditional way or non-traditional way. If you take it yeah. the traditional way, it's that, oh, people with mental illness have demons in them. That's very problematic. But then if you take it the non-traditional route, it's also problematic because it's like oh people who have mental health issues or mental illness could easily believe that they 
need to do a, ro- a ritualistic sacrifice to Satan and behead three people. It's going to be problematic either way. And to the people who are going to take the wrong response to this movie, they're going to take it either way, whether it's the traditional way or not. Yeah, true. But I do agree with you. I do think that this movie had an interesting thing to say about mental illness, whether or not it's the right thing to say. That's a on a case-by-case basis. For my own personal just enjoyment of horror in general, I like to think that a demon was involved. I, I, it's the same thing with The Shining. Whenever we get to that, I'll explain reasons why I think the ghosts were there, along with like cabin fever. I think it's the same thing here. I think there is to, an entity involved in some way. And who's to say that the entity isn't a manifestation caused by the feelings of the school or between Rose and Cat or Cat alone? Whether or not the entity is there in reality for everyone, it doesn't matter because the entity is real to the person manifesting it. Yeah, and there's been like weird science experiments where like people have created their own entity in a lab. I do believe in the power of like the willpower of the human mind. Yeah. Uh, and so if enough people believe in it's almost like the Slenderman phenomenon, enough people believed in Slenderman that you had those two little girls who tried to commit murder as ritualistic sacrifices of Slenderman. Whether or not there was an actual entity of Slenderman involved is irrelevant because the little girls believed it anyway. Yeah. Um, it's almost like that cultural zeitgeist causing these things to, to manifest in some way. But that's a whole another rabbit hole to go down, which we won't. I would say I'm like you, Mansfield, where I'm, I'm not particularly very religious. I'm actually very, more so now than ever, very hung up on religion just with all the recent events that have happened with the Catholic Church, even more just fucked up shit being revealed that they do however and maybe it's because of my upbringing or maybe just because i i don't know i do believe in outside i'm trying to word this in a way that i don't sound crazy um because i'm very rational i i mean hell i went to school nursing school like i very rational i i'm very scientific but i also a part of me does have that and i guess that's why it's called faith of just forces outside our control. I don't know how much they directly affect our lives, and I don't think it's relevant to our day-to-day. I don't let it... I, like I said, I, I try to treat people well just for the purpose of being a good person and not being just another asshole. I don't do it in hopes of some eternal award. Yeah. Reward. That's not like why I do it. I can't fully accept atheism or even agnosticism, if that makes any sense. I've tried to, but it's almost like the exact route of going full religious where i can't fully accept religion i can't fully accept being atheist or even agnostic i don't know it's a whole other conversation maybe that's why i like to lean more towards with these movies that are a little more ambiguous i like to still think that there's some kind of entity involved so that goes back to the conversation that bill and joan have in her hotel room when he just like flat out asks her like do you believe in god and she just kind of like smirks and says no and it's a very firm like 100 percent no you know, it's clear that maybe in the context there, she's saying, no, I don't believe in God, but I believe in something else. Um, or maybe she's... Satan, Satan, Satan. Yeah, or... <laughs> or this is possibly a point where she hasn't regressed. Up until this point, you know, she just feels like she's been picked up by a nice couple after she's gotten out of a mental health institution. And granted, it seems... You know, she has killed someone else and 
stole their ID. You know, whether, I I think it had to have been somebody in their own home because it looked like a very regular everyday kitchen, not a kitchen that you would find in a um, mental health facility. But you can tell that, like, she hasn't quite gone over the edge yet until she does find out, like, oh, these are Rose's parents. And that's the point where, like, she starts to see everything as, like, this sign and she starts to put together this roadmap. But, you know, maybe she says, I don't believe in God at that moment, you know, because she has come to grips with kind of her, you know, neuroses from earlier in her life. But, you know, maybe that was just like a nah, lol, Satan all the way. Who knows? But either way, like, that character in this movie is incredibly disturbing. I mean, I never thought in a million years the idea of, like, a Catholic schoolgirl being so creepy to me. I, I got that whole creepy girl ghost vibe from, like, Japanese horror. I understand that. But I never really was creeped out by the idea of, like, a disturbed Catholic high school or middle schooler until I watched this movie. Yeah. Again, I like, I, I as I'm walking through the hallways, I picture just that scene where Cat just comes around the corner and stab, 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 and that's so creepy to me. Yeah. Two other things I want to note that I really enjoyed about this movie was it takes that idea of whether or not you subscribe to synchronicity or coincidence or whatever you want to call it. It takes that and really does a great job of showing the dark side to that yeah sometimes coincidence or synchronicities that you catch in your everyday life are like oh i talked to my wife about this obscure bottle of wine that i had this one time and now we're going to a house party and they they had the same bottle of wine like oh that's kind of fun no this movie just straight up is just like no this serial killer just happens to get in the car of like the victim's parents and now has a chance to kill them and then I also really appreciated those like flashback scenes with how quick they were like you had mentioned when she stole that woman's identity she was obviously killing like a housewife or like a person who lived in an everyday home and the amount of detail that was put into those quick scenes whether or not you want to go back and watch them again or you sit and think about it a little bit more like those are quick shots but they have so much detail that's so sudden and creepy yeah true i really appreciated that part of this movie overall you know if we're talking about things that scare us in this movie none of the demonic possession supernatural stuff bothers me the idea that someone can not only be so lonely that they are willing to detach themselves from reality and live in that whether there's you know mental health at the root of that or not just the fact that somebody pushes themselves to that point to where they do break and they choose to see signs and connections and places where there aren't again going back to this whole you know the idea of synchronicity and everything else like just the people that look for connections and are always looking for answers because they're too scared to actually consider the fact that there might not be any answers or they might just have to deal with like a hard fact like my parents are dead and I'm now alone. That whole idea that we as human beings can push ourselves to these kinds of breaking points bothers me a lot worse than oh it was a demon. There's a spooky voice. You know, she bends over backwards. And and it's just so raw and horrific in this movie. There's nothing stylized about the murders at all. It's very raw and matter-of-fact, and it's just so extreme with the decapitations and the way that she uses the heads is just so disturbing. So overall, like, this movie to me is solid. Like, this is one of the better horror movies on the indie scale in the last few years. I'm really, really still kind of confused as to why this movie didn't come out right away. Um, besides just maybe 
studios got cold feet a little bit about some of the content in the movie, especially dealing with the Catholic Church and some of the more religious aspects of this movie. But overall, I mean, solid. I've really dug this movie. I've tried to recommend it to a bunch of people. It certainly got under my skin once I was done with it. I am definitely all in on this one. Yeah, I would say that the things that worked for me, at least... And when I say work, I mean got under my skin and creeped me the fuck out. Along the same lines as you is being isolated and mental illness and like what that can do to the human mind. It almost reminds me of that comic, uh, The Killing Joke by Alan Moore, um, where Joker abducts Jim Gordon and like subjects him to all this terrible shit, trying to basically psychologically break him. And his whole point is all it takes is one bad day of just enough fucked up shit happening to you in one time period that it can break any human being. And then also, too, the thing that really creeped me out in regard to just the mental illness and isolation of this movie was my own experiences, because I am very open now, I am at least, with my own mental illness of depression and anxiety. And I know what I've convinced myself of when I've been at my most depressed, and even as recent as a couple weeks ago, I've convinced myself not to get out of bed in the uh, like at all period and yeah on paper compared to like a little girl going insane and beheading people yeah that's not that bad but think about that I woke up probably after sleeping a lot longer than I should have nine ten hours and then just laid there because I convinced myself that it was either the safest place for me to be I didn't deserve to get up or there was nothing else going on therefore why should I even bother and I I'm pretty well treated this movie disturbed me because there's always that undercurrent with mental illness and anyone who suffers from depression or anxiety there is always that fear of stigma and there is that the idea of what I did in my own isolation like this movie in a fucked up way reminded me of that intentionally maybe maybe unintentionally I don't know for me at least this was a healthy way of of dealing with that it creeped me out but it was a healthy way of dealing with that but then the other thing is again the demon thing does just work for me on on the surface level like jump scare coward me anytime you introduce like evil entities ghosts demons that creeps me out with the exception of her walking around the corner and stab 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 to rose that one that scene did get me pretty bad otherwise the whole idea of like her murdering and like beheading them the whole just like the gore of it and the violence of it that aspect of like slasher horror Again, it doesn't scare me too badly. Not in the same way as, as the psychological and spiritual aspects. Yeah, once again, w- listen to that song Sweat Loaf by Butthole Surfers. And it goes kind of hand in hand with this movie quite well, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, also too, another shout out once again to your younger brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator. You can find Party Gator's stuff at like Bandcamp and things like that. Go ahead and check him out. He does our opening and closing themes. Thank you once again, Jesse. Those themes are badass. Um, one other thing too, just anytime like uh, anytime this kind of subject matter goes on, this is like one of the very few soap boxes I will get on. Um, if you are someone who is dealing with some shit, whether it's mental illness, anxiety, depression, PTSD, the list goes on. It's totally fine. It's normal. We're all kind of f- a little fucked up on the inside, but yeah. seriously, if you if you can talk to talk to people, like there is always someone out there for you um, who will listen. It's always better to talk to people. Seek treatment if you can. Treatment has helped me so much. I've gotten such a good handle on my own mental illness, and it, you're not alone. Just always talk to people. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's all I got to say about that. Again, we are Watch If You Dare the podcast. You can find us at 
at Watch If You Dare for Twitter and Facebook. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We are also on Podbean. Hope you have a spooptastic week, everyone, and we will catch you later. Sally! Sally! I'm going to make that our sign-off from now on. Yeah. That or, or, that or the Satan, Satan, Satan from the Buttle server. Yeah, we can, we can alternate it. We'll see.